Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory Glory to to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so open our eyes that we might see what you want us to see this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. There are uh, a lot of great stories that have been encompassed in the last week. But one thing I know is that we all love the stories about the lost things. There's a lost sheep and a good shepherd that leaves the 99 very foolishly to go find the one. Uh, There's a lost coin, a a single silver coin, and a woman overturns everything in her house. It probably looked like yours did yesterday morning, just to find a coin. Fascinating. And there's lost sons, and I say that particularly on purpose. One is lost in his pursuit of unrighteousness. The other is lost in his pursuit of self-righteousness. And yet there's this father who seems to have this unflinching love for both of them. It's great to hear stories about lost things, especially when they become found. But our story this morning outdoes all of these because the lost thing in our narrative is Jesus. Jesus is lost. I lost my son once. He's here today. We found him. But the story was quite terrifying. My wife, Allison, and I were leading uh, 12 families from my former church at family camp up in Ute Trail in Colorado, beautiful scenery. And one of the best things about this camp was the individualized care of the counselors. Each family was given their own college-aged counselor whose primary job was to watch just our children. That's a great ratio. The kid-to-counselor ratio at most camps is like one to eight. And we had two kids and one counselor. It's great. It works until it doesn't. 
We came down the hill from the parent teaching time, which is where all the parents get away and get to learn about Jesus and solitude and silence. And we were re-entering camp and we couldn't find Davis. What's worse than that is they couldn't find Davis either. Every able-bodied adult for a period of about 30 minutes was searching for my son. It was terrifying. It didn't feel like 30 minutes. It felt like three hours. There's a fishing lake in the middle of the camp. He did not yet know how to swim without floaties. It backs up to the Gunnison River. There are cliffs. There's a ropes course. There are hiking trails. There are bears. And my wife's panic was about twice my own. But we found him. And do you know where we found him? With David Springer. Of course. Why didn't we think to look there? He was playing hide and seek inside of a cabin in Colorado with his friend David. That's exactly where he should be. Because when we went to family camp, his primary allegiance was no longer to us. It was to David Springer and Holden Moffat. Wherever they would be, there he would be also. So with great relief, we found him. And inevitably, the rest of the week, anytime somebody said, Davis is lost, we just went and found the Moffats or the Springers. And there he was. Not his mommy and daddy. He's with his camp friends. It was his week where Holden and David got all of his attention. Sounds a little bit similar to this passage, doesn't it? You have Jesus, and from Mary and Joseph's perspectives, he's utterly lost. Okay, and listen, so that it doesn't sound like I'm coming down hard on Mary and Joseph. They were very responsible parents. We know that from this chapter in Luke. You scoot back and you see they're circumcising him on the eighth day, as noted with the story with the shepherds. And then next, they're presenting him in the temple for consecration as the firstborn son. It's noted in the story with Simeon and with the prophetess Anna. It's an echo of our Old Testament reading with Hannah and Samuel. Both these mothers consecrating their son unto the Lord. To say it perhaps a little bit differently, instead of what we might normally do, which is ask how we can give the world to our children, these two women are asking how they can give their children to the world. That's not something an irresponsible parent does. It's what a faithful parent does. And then now in our narrative, there's Mary and Joseph, and they're making the 70 to 90 mile trek to Jerusalem in a caravan by foot with family and friends. It's a dangerous trek. That's why they took a party along with them. There's strength in numbers. And they're going to Jerusalem for Passover to offer sacrifices and fulfill the law of God and doing it as a family. They're not irresponsible. They're responsible, and they've been given a precious divine gift. And so it begs the question, how do you forget Jesus? Amidst all the religious observances, how do you forget him? You probably hear something in that question. It can happen. But in the end, they find him. And when they do, he's exactly where he should be. That's the focus of the passage. They check for three days everywhere that they can think to find him, and finally, David Springer. They go to the temple, 
And what do they find? He's with the experts of the law, and he's astonishing them with his understanding of the law. 12-year-old Jesus, not yet bar mitzvah, bar son, mitzvah commandments, not yet 13, the ritualistic age at which a Jewish boy becomes a son of the commandments. And yet here he is astonishing the PhDs of the day with his understanding of God's law. But like any panicked mother, Mary does not approach him and congratulate him about his astonishing wisdom. She says, why did you do this to us? In essence, like a panicked mother, she kind of blames him for getting lost. And then Jesus speaks. And when he speaks, it's the first time in the Gospel of Luke. These are where the, the first time you're going to find red letters there. And his words become the focal point of this narrative, and it's going to be our focus today. It makes clear Jesus isn't lost at all. He's not lost. He's home. And as we consider his words, we're going to see two things. One, first, his primary identity and how that identity leads to a primary allegiance. Look back with me, and let's focus just solely on Jesus' words. Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In this narrative, there's a progression taking place linguistically. It's hard to see in English, but it's more obvious in Greek. The narrative begins by introducing Mary and Joseph, not with their proper names. Do you see it in verse 41? They are first introduced as parents. It's emphasizing their role in Jesus' life. But then something interesting happens just a couple of verses later. At the end of verse 43, where it's translated, I believe, his parents did not know it, that he was staying behind. The literal Greek is different. It says Joseph and his mother did not know it. And so the father figure that's introduced in the beginning changes from parents, father, to Joseph. But Mary retains her title of mother. Before you fall asleep, this is important. And the reason it's important is the narrative seems to be progressing in a way that is causing Joseph's role as father to shrink into the background. Something else is being brought to the forefront, being illuminated, being revealed. Joseph's role doesn't change. He still is Jesus' father. But for the purposes of this narrative, there's a shift taking place. It's leading towards Jesus' words when he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Joseph isn't forced out of Jesus' life. Jesus is going to submit to him in verse 51 and return home. He's not a rebellious, disobedient preteen. He's saying, Joseph's not ultimately my father. This is exactly where I should be. He is in his true father's house. And this shouldn't have come as a surprise to Mary because Gabriel's prophecy, the great annunciation that was given to her, said this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so here's what this means. 
above all else that we know about Jesus, that's true of him. He is savior. He is redeemer. He is reconciler. He is justifier. He is the good shepherd. He is light of the world. He is king of the Jews. He is the bread of life. He is the advocate. He is the righteous judge. All these things are absolutely true. All these offices and all these titles, but they are connected to and contingent upon him being the son of God the father. God is father and only to the son has the father granted rule over the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Only the sacrifice of the perfect son is sufficient to actually and fully justify, redeem, reconcile, and forgive fallen man. Only the son has the father's permission and pleasure to come and judge the quick and the dead like we say in our creed. Only the son can plead our case before the throne of the father. Only the son And every other title appropriately given to him is appropriate. It's an office that he fulfilled on our behalf. But it is connected to and contingent upon his sonship. And so here, it's almost as if Jesus is reminding Mary of what she had already heard. He belongs to God the Father. He first and foremost is his son. And we know that because this reality is confirmed in the next chapter at his baptism when the heavens open and God declares, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. And so friends, consider that reality and then consider this one. Through faith, his sonship is transferred to you. In union with him, you become as he is. Which means your primary identity becomes that you are a son or daughter of the living God. Galatians make this, makes this clear. It says in chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are also an heir through God. And so above all else that's true of you, I am a father to Bryn and to Davis I'm a brother to my sister, Scotta, and my sister, Ashley. I'm right now a preacher to this congregation. During the week, I'm a counselor to those who are hurting. I'm a leader to our church staff. I am a pastor by my calling. I am a son of Scott and Carolyn Baker. But all those things are connected to and are contingent upon the ultimate reality that I am a son of God the Father. And it's true for you too. We get the cart before the horse. And when we make our temporary offices, our permanent identity, our life starts to feel like it's turned upside down. 
It's our greatest privilege to be called a son or daughter of God. It's the crown jewel of Jesus' work. And so this means your primary identity is not what you do. It's not what you earn. It's not the position you hold at work or in society or at school, kids. It's not even the place you hold within your own family. When asked, who are you? If you would first say, I am doctor or lawyer or pastor, you have it upside down. When asked, who are you? If you would say, I'm a father to my children or a wife to my husband or a baker or a frickin' Schmidt. I don't think there's many people who are gonna say frickin' Schmidt. You got it upside down. If you would say, I'm an athlete, I'm a cheerleader, I'm a student, I'm a longhorn, I'm an Aggie, potentially a Sooner. You've got it upside down. You are first and foremost like your Savior in union with him, a son or daughter of the living God. And if Mary and Joseph fully understood this about Jesus, the temple would have been their first and final destination. It's the Father's house. That's why he said, why were you looking for me? Anywhere but here. His growing desire, as it says, he was growing in stature and favor with God and man, was being revealed in greater light that he must be with his father. And so if this becomes true about us, that we are a son or daughter of the living God, then it's also going to change our primary allegiance. Jesus demonstrates that here. We begin to prioritize where the father is and what the father is about. Look back at Jesus' words. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And friends, there's some disagreement about the proper translation of this final phrase, I must be in my father's house. Whether it should be, I must be in my father's house or I must be about my father's business. And given that this narrative is about figuring out where Jesus is, most translators have chosen father's house over father's business. But I want to be clear. It's not necessary to make one choice over the other. The business of God was conducted in the house of God, the temple. And it flowed out from the temple. It was sacred space, worship, sacrifices, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. They were all promised in, connected to, and embodied in that physical space. Did you know it's the same for the church today? Worship, sacrifices, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, they're all promised in and connected to this sacred space. And so those who had come to the temple were blessed by those eternal realities that were sacramentalized there. Those things signified but also received. I'm going to try to use more common language. This, with scripture on it, signifies to us the actual word of God, does it not? But what is received is not just the pages in the book, it is the word of God himself. This bread signifies the body of Jesus. But what is received is true nourishment for your souls. We just had confession and absolution. That's not just a reenactment or a re-envisionment 
of confessing our sins and receiving forgiveness. You actually and really received forgiveness for your sins. What is sacramentalized in this sacred space becomes yours. Of course we want to be in the Father's house. We must be in the Father's house. But we also have to be about the Father's business. And then so those blessed in the Father's house with these sacramentalized realities, these eternal things that take on flesh and bone through our assembly together, you then become the embodiment of those things as you flood out of these doors. Forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, sacrifice, worship. That theme's carried out throughout the New Testament when you were called the priests of the living God. Living stones built upon the temple, the cornerstone of which is Jesus Christ. And so to some extent, what is sacramentalized here, we take out there to make holy what's in here out there as well. You got a pretty tough job, but you've got the best job on earth. We carry out the Father's business, and so the church gathered becomes the church scattered. It's displayed beautifully in Paul's letter to Colossae, to the church. This passage in Colossians 3 was actually what was read at my wedding. It is not written to a husband and a wife. It's written to brothers and sisters in Christ. And to the church in Colossae, he says, put on like a holy garment, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love. And then he says this, from your common worship together, singing and reading psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When I used to think this was just about me and Jesus, I thought, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, admonishing one another, This isn't just about you and Jesus. It's about brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about the church. It's about the sacred assembly of God. And as you sing and read psalms and hymns and sing spiritual songs, then what? Go in word and deed and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. And so we see as Jesus grows in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, he outwardly showed a stronger, growing, obvious allegiance to his father's house and to his father's business. We follow suit. Our primary identity as sons and daughters makes us care about the father's house. And it makes us care about the father's business. As an encouragement, you're here. is an admonition warning to us when we claim to be a son or daughter of God and we neglect the father's house a warning to us when we claim to be a son or daughter of God and we neglect the father's business and I don't say that because I want us to have a dutiful obligation of religious observance or ritual the root of Jesus' allegiance was that at his core, he loved the Father. And therefore, anyone that he would call a son or daughter, he had to be at the Father's house. 
Some of you may know this, but I spent my first 12 years in ministry as a youth pastor. That's not uncommon. Um, it's not unlike a fraternity where you have to go through the toughest part first, <laughs> right? Those were 12 of the most formative years of my life. Most of my students were not like 12-year-old Jesus. They were more like the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost sons. You know what the most three repeated conversations or inquiries I had as a youth pastor for 12 years? Can I read them to you? Students, you might relate. Number one, if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people and why do good, unbelieving people go to hell? I'll let Tim answer that next week. <laughs> Number two, if God really is real, how can he be the only true God and Jesus the only possible way to heaven with God? I will let Tim answer that as well. But this was the third most common question, conversation I would have. If God is with me wherever I go, why do I have to go to church or even need to go to church? It's a great question. That final question was often followed with something like this. I, I get more out of youth group on Wednesday nights than at church, or uh, I can have a quiet time by myself on Sunday morning, and you know how late we stay up Saturday night. Isn't it the same thing? Or it would be my soccer team has a devotional before our soccer game, so doesn't that count? There was a list and a list and a list, and I was always careful because I don't want a guilt-induced attendance. I want an allegiance springing from a heart of desire. And so I would use analogies to relate. Parents, perhaps you've done this before. You can eat a Thanksgiving meal by yourself, but isn't it totally different when you sit at the table with your family and enjoy it together? That wouldn't work with most students who are teenagers. Or I would say you can, go to, you can dance all, all you want by yourself in your room. Then you don't have to be embarrassed. But isn't it totally different when you go to a dance with a date where all of your friends are? Often fell on deaf ears. And so I would say to the athletes, hey, you can play backyard football with two buddies by yourself, but isn't it totally different when you put the uniform on and you stand in the stadium amidst all of the energy and the excitement and you go together as a team? And it would often fall on deaf ears. There was no concept of sacredness of space and sacredness of people combined together into one. And you know what? The real answer is represented to us by 12-year-old Jesus. And it may not be the answer we want to hear, but I can't give a better one. This is what he says. Why the temple? Why the church? Because it's your father's house. You are his son. You are his daughter. And you want to be about your father's business outside of here, but also inside this assembly. Come to your father's house. I realize we need to grow in our understanding of how these sacramentalized things become actual realities for our life, but that is never best done by ourselves in a bedroom.
It's done right here. I'm glad you are here today as a part of this sacred assembly. Let's pray. Father, we'll end where we began. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So give us eyes to see what you wished for us to see today and help us to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Christ's name, amen.